Beat on Audio, the podcast for writers and all who are interested in books, literature and the printed word. Write on Audio has moved to a weekly format, splitting our content into shorter themed podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe in your favourite podcast app so you don't miss any of our editions. Write on Audio Interviews, inspiring you to write by sharing the experience of prominent authors. Our interview this month is with novelist and audio drama writer Kaylin Steed. Kaylin's debut novel, Home, was published by Raven Bloomsbury in January, and in 2021, they won the pen-to-print audio play competition with their drama, Real Boy. The interviewer is Chris Gregory. I'm joined today by Kaylin Steed. Kaylin is the author of Home, a new novel coming out this week on Raven Bloomsbury. And um, some of our listeners will know that you're the author of um, of our audio drama, Real Boy, which won the 2021 Pentaprint Audio Play Competition. Uh, we worked together on that and uh, brought it out in December 2021. But we're here today to talk about Home, your debut novel. So many congratulations on publication. Thank you. It's really exciting. It seems a long while since you told me that you were yeah. going to be published. I was originally told that it had been uh, accepted for publication, I think, in December 2020. Uh, and then we, we signed the contract in February 2021. So it's it's been been quite a while. Yeah, I, I suppose, you know, people who've never been published probably don't realise. I mean, that's, that's actually not a, an untypical period. In fact, some people... Uh, have to wait longer don't they from from finding out they're going to be published to to actually being published yeah it's quite a quite a waiting game it is it really is and um yeah every so often people are like friends or family will be like so it's, is your book out already and you're like no no it's still <laughs> still not quite there but now this week i can be like it's out <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and alongside the um the the paper book and and an ebook version there's an audio book and we're going to be hearing extracts from that through this podcast so it must have been amazing to hear those audiobook recordings for the first time yeah it was amazing um i was lucky enough to be given an option of a number of narrators and uh, paula masterson uh, just was like head and shoulders above the rest she was just brilliant she really got the characters and the pace and, and the tone of everything and yeah it was, it was uh, really delightful to hear her read it and a little bit surreal as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose it's one thing hearing an audio drama performed by professional actors because because mm. clearly that's what an audio drama is for. But um, yeah. you probably you probably don't have in mind as you're writing a novel that someday an, an actor will be reading it. I'm sure listeners will appreciate what a great job Paula Masterson's done on that as as we listen to extracts uh, through the podcast. If you're looking from one of the windows of the schoolroom, beyond the wall and the gate, you can see a carpet of trees and, further away, mountains. On a really nice day, you can see the blue, then white tops of the tallest peaks. But when it is rainy or cloudy, it looks like the sky ends at our wall. You're not really supposed to look up at the sky, though. Not while you're working. I have already got into trouble for that today. 
I'm keeping my eyes down now, carefully, looking only at the pebbles and gravel on the stones of the path behind the kitchen garden, watching them tumble and skitter back onto the earth as I sweep the path clean. The daughters have to do this job every week. I stop for a moment and prop the broom against me so I can reach up and sort my hair. It has actually come loose from its pins, but it's only an excuse. I'm really doing it because if I don't do something other than sweeping for one second, I will scream. Or laugh. Or shout. Or any one of a hundred other things that get you in trouble. There's a smack against the back of my legs. My knees crumple and the broom falls. Angela hits the back of my knees with her broom again. You're supposed to be sweeping, Catherine, she says, not doing your hair. Vanity is a transgression. Her hair never seems to come loose from its pins. She never gets in trouble for looking up at the sky while she's supposed to be working. I bend to pick up my broom, trying to ignore the smarting from my legs, but she kicks it away. I was, I say. I try to pick the broom up again, but she plants her foot squarely on it. Was what, she says. Angela has spoken loud enough that the other daughters dotted around the paths have looked up and are watching. Their teeth are out in grins. I look down at my feet. I was sweeping, I say. One of the sisters will be round to check on us soon. I have to be working when she does. I wanted to start talking about home by, by getting you to just give us an overview of, um, of, of the novel and what it's about, please. Yeah, sure. So Home is about Zoe, who is a young woman living in Dublin. A figure from her past appears unexpectedly and she is drawn back to the cult that she uh, escaped from when she was still a child. And as an adult, she's tempted back in an effort to try and rescue her sister. Um, so she kind of makes this journey back into the cult, but at the same time is sort of rediscovering all these memories that she's buried of her uh, experience when she was a child there as well. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, it's such a engaging and involving read actually i i found myself doing that um, that thing you know that just one more chapter yeah. uh, thing quite a lot during my um, late night reading sessions which is always the sign of a of a book that i'm i i, I find it difficult to put down but it's not always an easy read, is it? I mean, you, you get very deep into the world of cults. And without giving too much away, our protagonist, Zoe, or Catherine, as she's known in the cult, mm-hmm. uh, suffers some really, really bad stuff um, mm-hmm. in those in those scenes within the cult. You must have done a lot of research on, on, on cults and their practices in preparation for writing Home. Yeah, and Home was written over a period of, several years um I'd sort of had the idea from it from for ages and ages so I'd always been quite interested in cults and because I wasn't writing it with an especial belief that it would one day be read by anyone else but me there wasn't like a sort of dedicated like here's my three months of research and then you know I'm writing it was more like just over a period of years I you know watched documentaries about cults read books read interviews online with with people who kind of like left cults and, and so on and 
Um, so we kind of absorbed that over over a period of years while I was kind of working away on on the book here and there uh, in between jobs and things. Uh, so yeah, I know I did I did do research, but when people ask about it, it sounds like you know you imagine someone very studiously in like a in a library or something. It was it was more kind of piecemeal general interest that d- developed into the the writing of the book as I went along. And I think that I mean the, the world of cults has been kind of well well studied in mm. in books, um, films, documentaries. Mm-hmm. I still found myself surprised, well, shocked by by some of the some of the things mm-hmm. I read and some of the, I guess, abuse and um, all kinds of psychological and physical abuse that um, Zoe suffers. Mm-hmm. We'll talk more about that shortly. But was it difficult to write those those sections, uh, Kaylin? Yes. Yeah, it was. Um, there's one scene in particular that I found difficult to. Not, not so much difficult to write, but really difficult to go back and edit because when you, you, you're you kind of building towards publication, you have to edit things over and over and over. And I always find that really difficult to go back and look at it like clinically because I suppose when you're writing, you're very much in the scene and the emotion of it and going back and looking at it and thinking, you know, is that comma in the right place was quite an odd way to like look at a scene that was um, so sort of like upsetting in its content. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was it was tricky to revisit them. And I mean, obviously, I'm sure it wasn't an intention just to write this this mm. this stuff to shock, mm-hmm. but I, I'm sure it will have that effect. I mean, were all of the practices and things that happened to Zoe things that you that you've actually heard or read about in 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 real cults? Pretty much, yeah, or, or sort of like analogs of them. Um, there's a scene in in the first chapter, um, so it's not. Not giving away too many spoilers where um, mm. Zoe has, uh, sorry, uh, Catherine, as she's known um, when she's very young, she's overheard swearing. And as a mm. result, she's she has mud and earth pushed in her mouth. And that was uh, sort of inspired by, and again, a lot of stuff was, wasn't necessarily inspired just by, by cults, but by by behavior that you see in, in kind of everyday society, the idea of like washing children's mouth out with soap. Um, which I, I think luckily is not something done as commonly these days, but is, is certainly something you, you heard of in the past. And that idea of like, you know, that, that kind of physical manifestation of, of trying to cleanse something or, or show that something's thought of as dirty. Um, so that, that was what inspired that, that particular scene. A lot of it feels about to be about control. Absolutely. And, and as, as you said, I think that, that there are metaphors. I mean, clearly the cult for it to exist needs to control its members very very tightly mm-hmm. um but there are metaphors in you know the way that nation states control their subjects and mm-hmm. you know we can think of things going on in i i mean i found myself thinking of some of the things going on in in russia at the moment where mm-hmm. where truth is you know is twisted to such an extent that um you can be punished for telling the truth mm-hmm. but but as you've also said you know parents washing their kids mouths out with soap it's it's all about control and coercion isn't it and that is the world that Catherine Zoe uh, exists within. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time, the one of the markers of a cult is that it exerts unusual control over someone. So, so lots of I mean, the lots of groups. This is the interesting thing about looking into cults. Like, lots of groups have like cult-like aspects. Like, I used to play for a, a rugby team in Dublin, and like there was cult-like aspects to the rugby team. You know, <laughs> we'd all chant things together, or you know, you'd mostly hang out with the people in the team and. 
uh, a lot of your like time and social time is taken up with it. So like there's there's cult like aspects to a lot of things, but the things that delineate a cult from just you know an activity that you're very absorbed in or a community that you're very much part of are things like the the unusual level of control they exert over your life, which you see in terms of like. Uh, restricting what words you can learn, restricting even like basic things like relationships that you can have, um, disrupting family, familiar relationships, but also romantic relationships, relationships for the purposes of like bearing children. So even those most basic aspects of how you connect to other people being controlled is something I was really interested in. I think the, the, and the thing you, you reference it, but 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 I've read about it in other in other cults as well. Is that financial control mm-hmm. as well? When for 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 adult joiners, mm-hmm. the the cult seems to manage to take control somehow of their finances. So mm-hmm. so it effectively becomes impossible mm-hmm. to escape. Yeah, and 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 w- one of the things that you know, as well as the fast pace of the of the novel you evoke this claustrophobia as well of it of it being stifling of there being no escape mm-hmm. and again i mean writing that must have been so difficult because you were putting yourself in in that world over over a sustained period i mean was that something you were aware of that 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 claustrophobia of it yeah i think the first person narration kind of helps with that because you you only see Zoe's point of view and at various points she's very restricted in what she's allowed to know and so we get like half-heard conversations and she hears words that she doesn't know but the reader will know so there is a lot of kind of a lot of that claustrophobia comes from the the like limitations of her point of view. We talked about that you know that psychological and physical damage inflicted on Catherine Zoe and I felt that that could have had the effect of making her a somewhat unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. actually, and as, as you said, we 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 are, it's a first person narrative mm-hmm. from from their point of view. But at no point did I find myself not trusting her. Mm. Was that something you found yourself worrying about? Someone whose worldview is so painted by others mm. um, could have a could be a very unreliable na- narrator. But but I didn't I didn't feel that. Uh, yeah, I guess there's different types of unreliable narrators, and there? there's the ones that deliberately deceive the reader. I'm never like as fond of those types of narrators. Like I feel like that's a very, I don't know, it's a very aware I'm telling a story, aware I'm reading, writing a book kind of structure. I'm really interested in unreliable narrators who don't know they're unreliable, but yeah. they're they're committed to what they believe is the truth. And that's the case with almost everyone in the book, like the people in in the cult who are in these kind of like higher levels don't necessarily feel like they're being misleading. They think that what they're doing is right and this is the truth that they understand. And if everyone else would just go along with them, everything would be fine. So I'm really interested in that idea of like everyone's own perception of truth. And I think that's why Zoe feel doesn't feel like she's so unreliable, even though like she is quite an unreliable narrator. She doesn't understand a lot of what happens to her. She doesn't remember a lot of her from her adult perspective she doesn't remember a lot of her childhood so she can't give like a reliable account of it so she is she is an unreliable narrator but she is very committed to the truth as as she understands it the door to my building is standing open but that's not new The part of the city it's in isn't great, but my little flat is my sanctuary. It's small, 
and too cold in the winter and too hot in the summer, but it's my own place, filled with my own things, and I know that as soon as I get inside, I'll feel much better. I can't quite see right. It's like there's shadows where there shouldn't be, too many of them and at strange angles. I steady myself with a hand on the banister and drag myself up the stairs to my flat. I'll be okay once I get inside. I might not get into bed right away. I might strip off my silk jeans, make a cup of tea in my favourite mug, the giant stripy blue one Meg gave me, wrap myself in my cosy winter blanket with the constellations on it and curl up on my squashy old couch. I'll nap there and then later maybe read my book. If I feel like eating, I might even order takeaway instead of cooking as a treat. Everything will be fine if I can just get inside. I have to pause on the way up the stairs. Black spots waft in from the edge of my vision. I need to sit down. My key catches in the door instead of clicking through smoothly. I must have forgotten to lock it this morning. I try the Yale lock, and that's on properly at least. I push open the door and drop my keys and phone into the bowl on the little table just inside and hang up my jacket and scarf. I shuffle down the dim hallway to the kitchen. I'll put the kettle on first, then get into my pyjamas. There is a man sitting at my kitchen table. He is dressed all in black, with a black overcoat folded neatly over the chair beside him. His hair is greyer than it was, but it is still recognisably him. He is tracing a design on the tabletop with one of his fingers, and he looks up as I come in. Hello, Catherine, he says. My legs can't hold me, and I drop to the ground. There is a rushing noise in my ears, and everything is overbright. This is not happening. He cannot be here. He is speaking. His mouth is moving, but I can't hear what he's saying. He stands and moves towards me, and I want to get up and run. I want to open my mouth and scream, but the black spots are back, crowding into my vision, flowing and merging into the darkness of him until the last of the light is gone, and they have blotted out everything. Another thing that I, I I felt as I was reading it, I and mean, I've talked about the fact that I, I found it difficult to put down. The pace was was very engaging, but but there was a sense of helplessness as well. That there was a sense of being on a runaway train that you had no control over, and clearly that would be what um, Catherine Zoe uh, feeling through through this the story. Yeah. But was that, I mean, was that something that happened, or was that something that you? intentionally uh, tried to put into the into the story that that feeling of helplessness that the reader would experience I always wanted to give the sense that Zoe's quite passive um because of the way she's been brought up she's been brought up to be like utterly obedient and not question things and she does change a bit as an adult but I very much wanted her and you know when you start a story with a character who's passive they're going to end up active by the end of it so I, I want yeah. to kind of start with her being brought along on something but the the pace of it very much came out in the editing. It always intended for the last kind of part of the book to be really pacey and breakneck. But the 
editing process and um, when I first spoke to Sarah Helen Binney who became my editor at Raven they said that they were interested in the book but she was like we, we'd like to see a bit of a revision before we like definitely offer on it and she sent me this like kind of long letter with with suggested revisions and one of them was cut 20,000 words from the start <laughs> I was just about had a heart attack. Yeah, just twenty thousand words. <laughs> I just thought that was easy. At the time, I was like, "Oh God!" But then, having done it, you're like, "Yes, that's brilliant." And like everything that was in there, all these little like seeds I laid for characters and events and things, all had to kind of get shifted later. But it did mean that the narrative just throws you in at the start. There was a bit more initially of like Zoe's life in Dublin and the the journey back to the cult and stuff, whereas the edit just kind of like really. Up that pace and she's much more immediately back there within a couple of chapters that uh, pace just kind of like continues and sticks up and that was something that really came out with with the editing we really wanted to like build that that breakneck kind of um reading one gulp kind of feeling it, it's not a it's not a huge novel by any means in terms of length and you know, I, I was reading on an e-reader, e which was telling me how much time I'd, I'd got left in the book. And the the remarkable thing I felt was that how how hours just seemed to to disappear. And and um, so it really was it really was driving driving me along. Actually, I kept wondering as I was reading whether some of the I, I don't know what you call them, maybe the judgmental elements of the cult. Um, some of what it sees as forbidden or frowned upon practices mm. might be metaphors for societal responses to certain behaviours and choices that we make in our lives. Mm. Um, I'm thinking particularly of um, Zoe's first kiss with the, the woman who mm. she commences a relationship with, which um, I don't think it's given too much away mm. to say is that is then photographed by mm. a member of the cult and shown to mm -hmm. her. Was that in your mind as as you wrote, or or is that something I'm I'm kind of imagining? No, it means definitely there. And like I say, like a lot of these depictions of the the cruelties and things in cults that also exist in wider society. Um, and I think, you know, particularly we've seen a backlash lately against LGBT plus people and Zoe kind of, you know. You know, falling in love with this other young woman when when she comes out of the the cult and finds herself is a really important part of her like discovering her identity but <clears throat> when she goes back to the cult that's something that becomes something that's completely forbidden as you say something that they they want to punish her for and it's very much tied to like what I was saying before about cults when you control every aspect of someone's life even their relationships and because they have this very fundamentalist view that you know like a man and a woman should be together to make children and you know that's the function of that relationship and the, the two sexes and that kind of thing and um, they they have this absolutist view and part of that view is that any kind of same sex attraction or um what have you anything outside of that like very specific um what they would expect as a gender binary kind of thing they just completely mm. uh want to crush that and get rid of it and, and not allow it and make it seem like it's it's bad and wrong but i think that's something that we also very much see in in wider society i was trying to think of the the literature that was brought to mind as i was i was reading and i think that a very obvious one would be the handmaid's tale yeah um i think there's even references to 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 senior figures in the cult wearing red yeah. dresses, which yeah. I, I just brought that to mind. But but a but a much more 
contemporary in our world version of 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 the handmaid's tale certainly elements of of um what margaret would imagined i think i think there's also been uh, a bit of non-fiction published in in 2022 mm. around cults and life within them and i'm thinking of um lily dunn's book mm. lily has appeared on this podcast mm-hmm. what were there any notable pieces of fiction that you'd you'd read or were inspired by very much like the handmaid's tale absolutely the the kind of women in the cult are color-coded and that very much comes from the handmaid's tale that's a very direct Mm. reference um so yeah i think i think if you're writing anything where women are controlled with a view particularly to controlling their reproductive capabilities like handmaid's tales like right there you know yes absolutely you dread out of the room like you you kind of have to reference it so yeah i did very consciously kind of have that in mind um when i was writing I'd read, in terms of nonfiction, Tyra Westover's autobiography mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Educated, which um, was her growing up in a very, very, very strict, um, isolated Mormon family in uh, the US. She, you know, like wasn't sent to school. They weren't allowed to take medication, like not even pain meds, you know, nothing at all. It was like very, very strict and controlled. And just, yeah, I guess a little bit like she, because she leaves and she, um, she went on to, I think do like a PhD at like um, Oxbridge or something. And, mm. you know, so like a, a huge kind of journey for her. And I think it was really interesting reading her experiences in terms of like how she began to see what her life was like before she left in a new way and how it made her think about her family different, but you still have those very much those ties of like love and affection and duty while I suppose realigning what you, what you previously believed or thought about people. We'll put a couple of links in the uh, in the show notes for this podcast, so that if if any readers are any listeners are interested, they can they can do a bit of reading around around the topic. Kaylin, as someone who's um, who's written short and long fiction, audio drama and pose, what are the elements in your writing that you take from each of those those styles and mediums that you write write in? And have have you used elements in in your novel writing, for example, from audio drama? Yeah, I think so, definitely. I think writing audio, Real Boy wasn't the first audio piece that I wrote, but it was the first successful piece I wrote uh, because the first couple were like terrible. And the reason they were terrible is because I was writing them too much like stories, like a lot of narration and explanation and things like that. With audio, you want to be much more immediate. You want to avoid exposition. All you have is is the voices. and But then it very quickly becomes tiresome if a character is like, hey, sis, you know how we're going to dad's birthday party? You know, like, you know, like I'm in, I'm in <laughs> yeah. the car with you. I know you're my sister. Too, you too on the nose. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as you know. So, yeah, so writing audio was really uh, good at, like, kind of sharpening that aspect of dialogue because um, people don't talk to each other providing context that the other person already knows. And I think you, it kind of, like, helps you to trust your reader a bit, I think. Um, you don't want to put everything like lay everything out for a reader. I think people are find the process of working things out quite rewarding as long as you're kind of giving them all the pieces of a puzzle. So I think audio is is a really good way to practice that kind of thing. In terms of writing short fiction, I think short fiction was really useful because it was like finishing things. Because <laughs> I had yes. so many novels yes. that I just started <laughs> and then ran out of steam and never finished. But then when, and I never thought of myself as a short story writer, but then when I wrote a few and, and kind of sent them off and they got published and 
it was just just having that experience of like finishing something completing it revisiting it editing it mm. like just having a finished flawless piece was a, a different experience than just writing like bits of things so i think it's mm. really helpful to it's like if you want to run a marathon you don't start out by running 26 miles or whatever it is you start out by running smaller kind of pieces and you complete those and you work your way up so uh, yes. yeah there's a little bit yeah. like couch to 5k of writing i guess <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting description <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly thought that, um, well, I suppose there's an element of, you know, what came first, but I I thought that some of the dialogue in Home was incredibly snappy and, and it made me think, oh, you know, th- this is why Kaylin was so good at writing audio drama. Oh. <laughs> it could have been the other way around, but um, <laughs> it would make a great audio drama, I think. Oh, um, maybe we're albeit, somewhat, albeit somewhat harrowing. Yeah. <laughs> She opens the folder and slides out a glossy photograph, placing it on the low table between us. It's bigger than the one hand had of Amy and Father, and is a little blurry, which makes it look like it's been cropped and blown up from a wider image. But the detail is clear enough. It's the underpass cafe. The sight of it twists my heart. The picture looks like it's been taken from about hip height, so a camera placed on one of the tables, maybe? There's the main bar. There are the pastry tiers, and the register with the cash drawer that's always getting stuck, and the chalkboard behind. Out of focus, but I can see the day's specials written on it in Meg's looping script. And there I am, behind the counter, tea towel draped over my shoulder and a pencil behind one ear. I am leaning forward, my elbows propped on the bar and I am smiling. I look happy. Just so simply, uncomplicatedly happy. Opposite me, on the customer's side, is a young woman. She's wearing low-slung jeans, a vest top that shows the tattooed flowers that tumble from shoulder to shoulder across her back. And her hair is gathered on the top of her head in her customary afro puff. Her back is to the camera. But I can see her face as though it's in front of me. Deep, beautiful brown eyes and a wide smile that makes her cheeks fold into dimples. Innocence pulls another picture out of the folder. It is almost identical to the first, except the girl across the counter has pushed herself up on her tiptoes in order to lean across and press her lips against mine. One of my hands is resting on the back of her neck. I stared at the images, feeling dizzy. Two years ago. Those pictures must have been taken around two years ago. They've known where I was for that long. Innocence returns her hands to her lap, shakes her head regretfully. You must know how wrong this is, Catherine, she says. I could leave, now. I could just stand up and say that I'm leaving. She can't keep me here. I've done nothing wrong and I'm not a prisoner and she can't keep me here. The door behind me opens and I twist around in the chair. Two men dressed in the dark green uniform of father's guards step into the room. Innocent stands up. It isn't enough to revive you, Catherine, she says. I had hoped that you might not be so very lost, that you might be truthful with me. But you've concealed this throughout our session together. You are not ready to be called awakened. I look up at her, 
I am gripping the arms of the chair so tightly that my fingers have punched right through the worn little patch in the upholstery. I can feel the rough, prickly material coiled underneath. Behind me, I hear the men step closer. You cannot be awakened, Catherine, until you are purified. And, and in terms of the the gestation of of, of, of home, how, how long were you working on it for? Oh, Lord. So there's different answers to this question, depending on, <laughs> um, you know, like the acts of my, the acts of my father, the ship of thesis thing, like if some bits replaced over time. So um, on the one hand, potentially you could say I was writing the story from when I was about 13, um, which, and it was initially very different. Initially the, the character was because <laughs> I was 13 was a 13 year old girl who had escaped from the secret government facility that was training child assassins. Um, oh, nice. And that I considered very plausible at the time. And I kind of like noodled with that story on and off for like years and years and years and never wrote more than about 10, 15,000 words. And then I kind of revisited it in my like mid, late 20s and rewrote bits of it again and, and kind of got a bit further on um, and ultimately applied for a, a master's um, in creative writing at Glasgow Uni using the opening that I'd kind of um, had written for a couple of years. And that was oh, 2016. And then I used that during the master's was like my project. And ultimately I finished it a couple of years after the master's, but the book that's been published, the 20,000 words that got like lopped off was all the stuff that was written pre that. <laughs> Oh, okay. so. so in terms of the manuscript that survived uh, I've been writing it since 2016 and I finished it in 2019 but bits of it have been kind of gestating for a little longer yeah that's a yeah. very long answer to a very short question I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that's fine no I, I think it's interesting it's always interesting for listeners to to realize how you know what the process of writing a writing a novel is and obviously you, you're oh. someone who's as a day job and family and yeah. all, all of that other stuff that everyone else has. Yeah. Um, so, so writing is what evenings, weekends. Yeah. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to work four days uh, at my day job at the moment. So that frees up a day for writing, um, which is really nice. But when I finished home, the first draft of it, I was working full time and I also had a one-year-old and I'm like, Never that, I'm, not, I'm not sure when I wrote, I think I just didn't sleep. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> With a one-year-old, you're never sleeping anyway. So. Well, true. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> what do you hope uh, readers will get from, from home? Oh, I think, I think a lot of people like very rightly focus on the, the, the dark and distressing elements of it. And, and obviously those are there, but I think, I hope that ultimately it's a it's a hopeful story. It's someone who grows up in in a way that tries to completely destroy who they are as a person, or or never even let them discover who they are as a person. But it is ultimately a story of someone who has survived that and who thinks she's left her past behind her, but turns back to face it. Yeah. I would hope that ultimately it's a it's a story that people find hopeful um, rather than just bleak and depressing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this is this is your your week of publication. Tell us a little bit about you know what happens when a when a novel comes out. What are, what are the um, what are the events and promotional activities you have uh, you have planned? 
Uh, so there is a book lunch tonight in Glasgow, uh, Sophie Hall Street, Waterstones, Excellent. which I'm really excited about. It's like my favourite bookshop, five floors of books. It's so amazing. Are, are you allowed wine and uh, nibbles and that sort of thing? <laughs> I told everyone there's wine. I'm not sure if there is actually wine. <laughs> so I lured people in. You heard um, it here first. <laughs> yeah, I need to smuggle in a few bottles. But yeah, so that's that's really exciting. I've been to so many lunches there and it's it's absolutely wild to think that um, I'm going to be launching there tonight. That's mm. uh, it's exciting. And then I need tomorrow. I am meeting some bookstall uh, booksellers um, in a number of uh, wonderful independent bookshops in Edinburgh to send some stock and, and say hi to some booksellers. And then on the 19th on Thursday, the book is officially released to the world. Um, if you've pre-ordered it, hopefully that's when it'll come through your your letterbox. And that's the yeah the official official launch date, which is very exciting. Excellent. And the audiobook. <laughs> Out on the yep. on the same day. Yeah, so it's hardback, ebook, and audiobook all drop in the nineteenth, and I think the paperbacks to follow in the summer. Yeah, excellent. Mm-hmm. Now would probably be a good time to um, let our listeners know how they can find out more about you and uh, buy a copy of Home. Yeah, um, well, it's on all your uh, your major kind of retailers. Um, Waterstones, obviously, uh, Bloomsbury website. Uh, it's also on the website named after a rainforest. Mm-hmm. Um, if that is a convenient one for you and you can find it at uh, all, all kind of major retailers excellent and obviously as as always we'll uh, we'll post some uh, clickable links so that you can find out more about uh, Kaylin and their and their book uh, in the show notes for this podcast and before i let you go Kaylin, this this is probably the most cliched question ever <laughs> ever asked in interviews but what are you working on at the moment uh, muffled screaming. Um, I, um, <laughs> Is that the title of the book? <laughs> it might be. I am uh, working on finishing a draft of book two, which, and, and like I was saying, home, I've sort of basically been sort of writing since I was 13. And this one, I've been trying to up my um, <laughs> my productivity. Uh, so, I'm, yeah, I'm wrestling with the, the last part of that uh, first draft. So, hopefully, that'll be uh, polished soon. Excellent. You do have your one one day a week of writing now, uh, where you don't don't yep. have to go to the day job. So, <laughs> so, that, so that's good. Excellent, Kaylin Steed. Thank you so much for joining us, and the best of luck with home. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's always wonderful to chat to. Thank you to Kaylin Steed for being the subject of our February interview. We'll print links in the show notes so you can buy a copy of their novel Home and listen to the audio drama Real Boy. We're always delighted to read your contributions. So if you'd like to see your words in Write On or hear them on this podcast, please get in touch. We'll share this link and all others mentioned in today's podcast as part of our show notes. I've been Tiffany Clare and you've been listening to Write On Audio. Write On Audio is produced by Chris Gregory and it's an alternative stories production for pen to print.